How about if I just start at the beginning? <laughs> you could you could be honest. <laughs> you know what? They have the sweat equity that went into that memory that they're making with their friends and family. And that's what's important with us, and that's what the I Am Real World's about. Well, that's a great question. You know, one of the best things about a spring food plot is you get a second chance if it fails. Chasing Giants with Don Higgins. Brought to you by buyafarm.com, your source for farm, recreational properties, rural homes, and more. By tapping into Don's years of experience, dedication, and commitment, Chasing Giants focuses on the techniques, strategies, and dedication needed to harvest one of God's most amazing creations, world-class whitetails. Now, here is Don and co-host Terry Peer. Well, welcome, everyone, to Chasing Giants, episode 74, brought to you by BuyFarm.com. I'm Terry Peer with the cover of North American Whitetail, August 2021, issue Don Higgins. How about that introduction? Well, that's probably more <laughs> than I deserve, but I guess it'll work. <laughs> well, congratulations. It's a... Uh, I, I know we've known about this for a while, um, but everybody who just got or is getting ready to get their August issue of North American Whitetail, special moment that uh, you with Mel is on the front cover, second time you being on the cover, but 25 years uh, to the month uh, from your first article being published. Yeah, that's right. I had my first article published in North American Whitetail in August of uh, 1996. And that just kind of opened the doors for me and uh, uh, started my career in the outdoor industry, if you will. And it's just kind of grown from there. Um, extremely grateful. Uh, editor um, Gordon Whittington uh, gave me that first opportunity. But since then, there's been a lot of different editors for different magazine titles that, that have allowed me to contribute to their magazines. I'm certainly grateful for that. And, you know, it's... It's really humbling to see your picture on the cover of a magazine. It's something that I dreamed about, you know, as a younger uh, deer hunter. But uh, to have it come true, it's it's kind of like shooting a world-class buck. You dream about it, but uh, then when it happens, it's like, wow, it really happened. Yeah, so uh, I have not gotten my issue yet, so I haven't gotten my hands on it. Uh, do you have yours? I do not. Uh had several people send me pictures of yep, theirs yesterday. Yep. So I'm, and that's how I get the picture. I'm guessing that mine will come here this week, so I know they roll those out. So, But congratulations. I'm just super proud of you. You know, for a guy that um, never really aspired to be a writer when he was younger, um, you've really – You've really used that um, kind of avenue and media outlet to uh, share a lot of lessons for people like me when I was younger and even still today. I know the magazine industry is kind of going away a little bit. It's not as much as it used to be because of, you know, the online stuff. But uh, there's still a lot of people that like to sit there and flip through the pages of a magazine. So, Yeah, you know, writing is kind of my thing. In fact, right before we got on this podcast, I was uh, typing out an article that's going to appear in Deer and Deer Hunting. And uh, it it opened the doors for a lot of other things. But, uh, you know, writing is, well, you know, what I, what I figured out years ago with my writing when I started is, and it's kind of followed through with everything I've done since, is when I would write from the heart, people would notice it would uh, they would notice that I really believed what I was what I was saying in that article and uh, I just learned to open up and uh, share my true feelings about things and you know I, I carry that over when I'm speaking in seminars or wherever or just talking to people one-on-one you just I've learned just to, to spit it out whatever you're thinking because a lot of other people are thinking the same thing but there's plenty of people out there that may share your thoughts, but they never, they never express them. And, uh, I think that's one of the things that's wrong with this world today is good people keep their mouth closed and, um, you know, they don't, uh, they, they may have the right idea in mind, but they don't do anything about sharing it. And, uh, once I figured that out and just started speaking from the heart and writing from the heart, uh, things just kind of exploded for me. Well, I mean, it's, it's, um, there's there's people that are in the outdoor industry that have taken a 
I don't want to say a faster path because it's not a competition. We had that conversation earlier this week when some of the social media trolls were being trolls. But, uh, you know, it's it's not a competition. But if you look at your journey since that first article was written, there was a lot of opportunities where you could have sold yourself out or, you know, endorse products for money or fame or publicity that you didn't believe in or partnered with people that you didn't feel comfortable with. And I think that even though it's taken uh, maybe more years than people who took the shortcuts, the integrity behind where you stand, I think you sleep at night knowing that whatever this ends up being or will ever be from this point forward, you did it the right way with uh, what you believed at all times. Yeah, for sure. You know, a perfect example is once I started becoming a published author, um, you know, back in the day, 25 years ago, these companies would, uh, you know, throw out free product to anybody that was writing a, a lot more freely than they do today. And I've had to turn down at least uh, three, if not four different bow companies who've tried to pull me away from Matthews. And uh, Matthews believed in me from the get go. And I appreciated that. And I've never shot a single arrow out of another bow except Matthews. Um, in 25 years now. Um, so uh, maybe, not, maybe not 25 years, over 20. I don't remember exactly when I came on board with Matthews, but it was over 20 years ago. And once I started shooting their bows, I never shot a single arrow out of another brand. I just felt I owed it to them. And, uh, you know, somebody may have been willing to pay me more money or whatever, but uh, I don't, uh, somebody that's been loyal to me in the past, I just don't burn that bridge without good reason. Well, um, it reminded me a story I read about recently. Um, as some people know, I work for a Japanese manufacturing company. So, you know, there's a lot of different Japanese stuff that intrigues me, especially about international business. Have you ever heard the story about Mr. Morita? Uh, no, I haven't told you that. Um, nope. I make a long story short. I don't want to take a lot of time, but I think it's, I think it's a great analogy to kind of your path thus far. Um, and right after World War II, there was a guy by the name of Morita that was in Tokyo, and he was a telecommunications engineer. And, you know, Japan was going through this huge transition of trying to get stabilized after the war, after the bombs were dropped and, you know, uh, decimated a lot of their country. We dropped a ton of napalm in their industrial uh, areas, so they were trying to rebuild so uh, it took them about, I think, seven or eight years off the top of my head, but they actually uh, designed and manufactured the first portable transistor radio that wasn't, you know, the big boxes that sat on the table. Uh-huh. And there was a company that came in from America and wanted to buy the radio, the rights to it, and, you know, mass produce them and sell them and you know, the company in Japan was struggling, but the company in the U.S. wanted to put their name on it. And the the, the moral of the story is Mr. Morita just didn't feel comfortable uh, giving up the name of the people that basically grew this company and having another company basically go in and market it, no matter how much money that they threw at the table. So he said no, and the company struggled and, and finally got off the ground. Uh, as the years progressed over the next probably 40, 50 years, that company was the first one to actually make v, uh, VCRs, compact disc players, and it took them a little bit longer to get to the end. But before Mr. Morita resigned, he actually uh, renamed the company Sony. So, huh. Sony, yeah, so you look at that path of somebody who had to make hard decisions that sacrificed in the short term. I think there's a ton of analogies as we talk about people wanting to get into the outdoor industry or maybe just even your farm. You know, we talked about the stairs versus the elevator. Everybody wants that mm-hmm. quick fix. You know, they want to, they want it done tomorrow. But you can't sacrifice the integrity and what you want to stand behind of who you are just to get that short-term fix. So I was reading about that the other week. And when I when I think about you in the outdoor industry, I think there's a lot of similarities because – You've been taking advantage of a lot. You've trusted a lot, but you've also developed a lot of really good relationships that's helped you along the way. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, for sure on all counts. 
I, I know I've been taken advantage of, but at the same time, I know that there's been a lot of good people in my corner that had my back when I wasn't around. So, uh, I, it all evens out. And, and, you know, in the end, I think as uh, people really get to know me, um, they, they see how loyal I am. And my wife says it, you say it, a lot of my friends say it. Sometimes I'm loyal to a fault, but I'm loyal to the point where I allow people to take advantage of me. And that's happened in the past, but, uh, you know, God's put me on this path for a reason. And to, to go down kind of another rabbit hole on this whole writing story, um, you know, when I was in high school, I just hated school, just absolutely hated it. And uh, when I was a junior in, in school, um, in high school, I actually failed English and had to retake it my <laughs> senior year. And uh, a lot of people think that this writing just comes natural. And, and I was smart enough to pass it. I was just lazy and, and just hated what I was doing. And, and that's why I failed it. But, uh, you know, probably one of the reasons I became a, a decent writer, I guess, is because I would read so much. And, you know, when I was younger, I would buy every single hunting magazine that, that was made. <laughs> I, I was just uh, so eager to learn and become a better hunter that if it had a deer article in it, I was buying the magazine. And, um, you know, for 20 years I worked in a in a factory and you ask the people that I worked with and they'll tell you that half the time I was walking around with a hunting magazine folded in half in my back pocket. Um, so I think it's the reading that made me a better writer. And, um, here I am today and well, the, uh, I haven't seen the article yet, North American whitetail, but, uh, I did mention that, uh, and I don't, so I don't know how it's been edited, but I did mention, you know, it was my 25th anniversary of writing for that magazine. Well, it's a long way to go about it, but um, I think all the listeners can join in with me, and it's not something to kiss your butt or, you know, just I think that um, we appreciate the unbiased and sincerity with what you do, both with your writing, your consulting, any of your outlets that even this podcast, um, you know, people don't don't necessarily have to agree with you, but they don't have to worry about it being biased. So congratulations on your 25th year of writing and congratulations on your second cover of North American whitetail. That's, that's pretty cool. Well, thanks Terry. I appreciate it. And I appreciate everybody that's reached out and congratulated me on social media or text or whatever. Um, you know, just the friends I've made are the most important thing that's ever come from this. And I just hope to make a lot more. Well, we got a couple good things to talk about as far as deer hunting goes and tied to this time of the year that I want to pick your brain a little bit about tonight. And let's start with taking a little bit different twist to the segment we did last week about understanding antler growth in velvet season. So right now, we kind of we kind of started it up and teed it up last week that everybody's getting these velvet pictures, but what does it mean? How much is that antler going to grow? How can we you know, the anticipation is huge, um, but understanding what we're looking at with cameras uh, and pictures right now. With this velvet growth, how does the weather affect antler growth where we're sitting right now this time of year? Well, you know, there, there's a little bit of debate on that. Uh, I know, for example, my, my buddy Cameron Cobble from uh, Iowa, um, he, he says that a dry year produces bigger bucks. And uh, he's got the data to, to, to kind of back that up. However, I've got another good friend who uh, is featured in my second book, Real World Whitetail Icons, and that's Lee Mitchell. Now, Lee Mitchell's a wildlife biologist who manages a uh, well, he manages a property in Texas, and he manages a, a big piece of uh, public land here in Illinois for the Army Corps of Engineers. And uh, the piece that he manages here in Illinois, I know he collects a lot of data. And uh, that data um, is based on, you know, harvest statistics uh, off of that site, that public land site here in Illinois. And, and he measures things like body weight, you know, gross antler score, ages of bucks, et cetera. And during 2012, when we had the extreme drought of 2012, I don't remember the exact figures. We need to get Lee on this podcast sometime because he's just a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, but uh, 
during two, the drought of or the drought of 2012, the, the body weights of the bucks were down by a significant percentage, and the antler size of the bucks was down by a significant percentage. And uh, I mean, he had a. This is not just random data. This guy is precise about everything that he does. He's probably the best public land deer hunter that I've ever met, and the reason I featured him in that book. Um, He's killed a lot of good bucks on, on public ground. In fact, he almost hunts exclusively on public ground, and he's done it not only here in Illinois, but he actually grew up a southern boy and uh, in Georgia, um, killed some good bucks on public land down there. Um, but his data, you know, kind of goes against what Cameron believes, and uh, at, at least during the 2012 rut. Now, that was an extreme example uh, or extreme uh, dry conditions in 2012 versus you know your typical summer dry period there's also the train of thought that bucks grow better um during wet years and the, the theory is that those plants you know they, they grow better and it's that young tender growth that the deer feed on um that, that's really nutrient dense and, and there's just more of it um you know when it's wet um my theory and something I, I've taken from the captive deer herd is, you know, a buck's antlers is almost like a radiator when it's hot in the summer. And there's a lot of blood flow in those velvet antlers, and, and it it actually uh, will cool, help cool the buck. That that blood flow gets up there in that antlers, and uh, it actually helps cool it. And the increased blood flow to that antler. Um, you know, is carrying nutrients. There's nutrients in that blood that feeds that growing antler. And by the way, antler is the fastest growing form of animal tissue there is. Um, a lot of cancer research um, has looked into into antler growth because cancer is also a very fast growing, uh, you know, tissue in the animal world. But uh, I know of captive deer breeders who, in their their buck pens, they will not allow their bucks to have shade. They will keep them bucks out in the hot sun because uh, when that those bucks are out in the hot sun, the antler or the blood flow to that growing antler increases, and they believe it it makes for larger antlers. Hmm. So, uh, you know, I I don't know what to to, to believe, but I can tell you that uh, cooler weather is not good. Um, but as far as wet or dry, I think an extreme either direction is not good. Um, I know Cameron's got some some pretty compelling evidence um, for for dry because basically when it's dry, the the plants don't grow as much, and the nutrients within that plant are condensed into less tissue, more concentrated. And uh, exactly, so every bite's and got that, more. And that in makes it. total sense to me. Yep. But uh, anyway, it's real interesting that, that the, some of those captive breeders would keep their bucks in uh, pens with no shade whatsoever to increase antler growth. So I, I know hot conditions are definitely good. As far as rainfall or lack of rainfall, I'm kind of still on the fence about that. Well, I think, um, I think it would, it, it's fascinating to think about. Um, very difficult for the average guy to draw a conclusion about it other than just notice trends. But I think we can all agree that extreme extreme conditions, one side or another, and the additional stress that imposes is not a good thing. Absolutely. Stress is a killer. Um, when it comes to antler growth, that buck needs to be as stress-free as possible. Yep. Um, okay. Well, that's interesting. Um, but yeah, I think we need to try to not only get him, but maybe even Doctor Doctor Strickland back on at some point. Uh, we we promised we would do that here before too long. Um, yep. If you look at fall food plot seed uh, right now, um, the team at at Real World's office has been absolutely. Uh, um, we didn't have much of an off season in between spring and fall. The amount of orders that are coming in is going pretty crazy. Um, I think we've started seeing a lot of people on social media bragging about going ahead and posting um, or planning their food plots right now. And if I've gotten one, I've gotten 60 this last week of people asking about them planning their food fall food plots this week. What are you thinking? 
Well, I, I think planting them too early is one of the worst things you can do, actually, because um, what happens is those plants, um, they get too mature and they lose their palatability. So by the time uh, hunting season rolls around, the deer actually may have moved off of your plots to a different food source. They like those young tender plants, and you, you want to time it, you know, with the opening of your deer season in the fall, which for most bow hunters, that's going to be October 1st or thereabouts. And, uh, you know, a good rule of thumb that I've always promoted for fall plots is if you live along Interstate 70, Interstate 70 cuts right through the heart of the country, through Columbus, Ohio, uh, Indianapolis, St. Louis, Kansas City. If you live along that Interstate 70 corridor, then you want to plant your plots around September 1st, give or take a few days either way, but around September 1st. And for every 100 miles you move north of Interstate 70, you want to move that up by a week. So if you're 200 miles north, then you want to move it up by two weeks. If you're 400 miles north, I know there's some guys like in Michigan, um, you know, upper Wisconsin, Minnesota and such that uh, late July is when they need to be planting them just right. based on where they're at. But right. for the majority of the country, that's not the case. Yeah, those guys are getting heavy frost October 1st, October tenth something like that yep yeah so um you know it's i think i think the there's a lot of people that get fooled by saying i need these huge plants by the time season starts and i think that's a little short-sighted if anything you want the fresh tender young growth um and if you're planting a fall food plot that has a lot of diversity in it i mean we talk about real world stuff a lot but a product like deadly dozen that's got 12 varieties, if they're designed and made properly, meaning the food plot blend, not everything in that 12 uh, uh, plants or seed types in there are going to be palatable at the very beginning. So at different times of the year, those things are peaking. So you don't have to worry about if it's a good blend with a lot of diversity in it. You don't have to worry about the deer coming in and mowing it off immediately. They're going to be picking you know, bits and pieces of what's palatable at that time. But you don't necessarily want it to mature right before the rut or, um, you know, die off and start rotting um, before December comes in where they don't have any late-season food. Right. And, uh, you, you know, the thing of it is, once deer season opens, it's not like those plants stop growing. Right. So... You know, October 1st comes around, the bow season's open, but the plants are still growing. So you want to time it where those plants are young and tender at the opening of season. And uh, as food sources uh, dry up in the fall, then then your plot should draw in more and more deer. Mm -hmm. So the next question that, that we get hammered with, I mean, absolutely hammered with, is what fertilizer do I put down when I go to plant my food plots just that's all the information we get yeah i've heard that one so many times i wish i had a dollar for every time i heard it and, and there is nobody on this planet that can answer that question without a soil test and i, I use that response so often because people say you know i don't have time for a soil test just give me some general information well there are so many different soils and, uh, you know, nutrients within the soil that need to be at the proper level that uh, if your soil is already high in a nutrient, the last thing you want to do is go and add more. Right. And it all starts with the pH, really. I mean, if nothing else, you need to get your pH right. And, uh, and uh, if the pH is not right, it, it really doesn't matter about the other nutrients because the plant can't utilize. So you got to start with getting the pH right. And there's absolutely no way whatsoever to know without a soil test. All right, so we're going to back up just a little bit, and but I want to make sure people understand this. If if your pH isn't right, you could go in and spend $2,000 on a three-acre food plot with different fertilizer and it not do a bit of good by what you just said with your pH is right. For those who yep. don't understand this, just just walk us through on what neutral pH is and so people understand that. And the only way to know that is to do the soil test. Yeah, I mean, a neutral pH is 7-0. And, 
if you're above 6.0, then you're, you're pretty good. But uh, you bring that, that pH up by adding lime to your soil. And once you get that the pH right, you don't have to go in and add lime every year in most cases. Um, but sometimes, you know, it may take two or three tons of lime per acre. And if you don't have that pH right, well, then just forget it because, uh, like you just said, Terry, you're wasting your money on, on everything else that you're putting out there. So that pH is the first thing you need to check and correct. And uh, so the, then you can check all your, the your cl- N, P, and K. The closer the pH of your soil is to neutral, the more nutrients the plant will absorb out of the dirt. So you could have high nitrogen, high phospho, um, everything else could be there in your soil but if you're not neutral on your ph it doesn't transfer to the plant so the closer we can get it to there and it might take two three years to get it to where you need to be and then there's other things that you can do about building soil that we've talked about before on the podcast but the other thing the other thing that i think it's hard for people and especially the especially when food plotters go to the extension office or maybe the university um, ag extension um, or the extension office, I mean, and say, I want to plant this food plot of deadly dozen. It's got 12 varieties. Here's my food. And it's really hard for the agriculture guys to say, here's the recommendation of what you need when there's 12 different types of plants in a um, bag. So what can food plotters do? They go and get their soil test and say, let's just use deadly dozen for an example. It's got... Uh, three cereal grains, winter peas, and then eight different types of brassicas. Where do they zone in on what the recommendation would be with with that kind of diversity? Well, again, first it's, it starts with the pH of the soil, but once you get that, then you really kind of need to to pick something out of that mix. And I always suggest looking at those cereal grains. Uh, go to your local fertilizer co-op and and uh, you know, get the soil test done, take the results of that soil test to your local ag co-op and say, here, get, I'm going to be planting cereal grains, oats, wheat, rye, whatever. Um, what do I need? Yep. And they'll be able to help you. Yeah. So if we focus in, say, with the deadly dozen, if we say we want to we wanna fertilize for, pick the cereal grains, everything else will pretty much thrive with that. Um, yeah. I have a, and, and I might be completely out of whack on my theory, I think that too much nitrogen in soil that has brassicas in it um, actually extends how long the plant gets palatable or how long it takes for it to get palatable. I think the more nitrogen you have in it, and the reason I say that is two different examples. Uh, we have a lot of old tobacco fields around here in Kentucky that you you have to torch the ground for tobacco with nitrogen so i mean farmers for years after years after years would put a ton of nitrogen back on these fields on these ridge tops and you could go in and you could have in these old tobacco fields you could have the biggest bulbs you've ever seen like i could make the brochure picture you know the volleyball size bulbs in these plots and the deer won't touch them but I can go yep. off to the side in the old clay hillside here in Kentucky and mow off a spot and till it and, and plant it in there without doing anything, and they mow them off. And the only thing I can think of is the hair fibers of those root plants like uh, turnips and tillage radishes and everything go down into the hard pan and pull all that nitrogen from where it's been farmed for so long, and it keeps that nitrate level so and basically it keeps the plant bitter for longer. It takes either more maturity or, or colder weather to bring it down. And I'm not a scientist. I'm not an agronomist, but that's my theory anyway. Um, there was another place that West Delks planted last year that was where they sprayed uh, liquid manure from a hog farm in. And I think he planted, yep. what was it, like three acres, a deadly dozen. And those uh-huh. deer went in and mowed every cereal grain and every winter pea out of there and never touched those brassicas. And then the farm, yep. the field right next to it, they mowed all of it off, but it was where they sprayed all that liquid manure on. So I think that people, they think that putting more nitrogen on it to get the big bulb might be helping them. In those cases, I think less nitrogen might be a little bit better. For sure. The nitrogen will definitely help with plant growth, but it also brings those nitrate levels up, which makes the plant uh, bitter or less palatable to the deer. 
Um, I, I never put nitrogen on a fall planted plot. Yeah. So, well, so, um, hope that helps people. If you're impatient and you're worried that you're being late with your fall food plots, you got plenty of time. I mean, you got six weeks here, um, for most of the country. Um, I know it's hard for people like that opening up in Kentucky, like I am, uh, we got to cheat it a little bit and squeeze it up. The other thing that uh, I've asked you about before, and if I have, say, a two-week window where I want to plant food plots, is it more important to plant it around moisture or rain in the forecast than it is necessarily the two-week window? Uh, it depends on the method of planting and uh, uh, the, the season that you're having or the year you're having. Like this year, you know, right now there's a lot of moisture in the ground where I'm at. Uh, we've got probably 10 inches of rain or more in July. Um, using a drill like the Genesis drill where you don't have to break the soil, especially if you got any kind of ground cover at all. Um, you don't have to worry about that rain there as much. But now if you're going to disc or till up your, your soil and broadcast your seed and then roll it in or whatever, then those rains, timely rains, can be a lot more critical. Yep. Well, before we move on to this week's Don's Best and Worst of the Week segment, um, I think everybody needs to know that you kind of got declined and weren't allowed access to hunt some properties you were after. So it's not like you got you got free reign of wherever you go. You got you got turned away this week a couple times, didn't you? I did. You know, last week on the podcast, I was pretty happy that I got permission on two new properties and was batting a thousand for the week. I mentioned that I had a couple more properties I was going to try to get permission on this past week. And well, I went and talked to both landowners and was denied both times. And I just wanted to share that because I think sometimes people get the idea that I'm living in a different world than they are. And, and I, I promise you, I get turned down more than I get permission. If I get permission twice in a week, that that's noteworthy. And this week I was shut out. I didn't get permission on anything that I asked for. So part of it. Yeah. So it's not like we don't have to face the same struggles that everyone else does. So um, still putting up trail cameras or do you have all of them deployed yet? Uh, I've, I've got probably, I don't know, pushing 40 of them out, but I've got a few more to get out this week. Uh, not many. I've probably put out, I don't know, four or five more and, then I'll pretty much be set for the rest of the summer. And, uh, you know, one thing that I've really pushed Terry is not to get those trail cameras out too early. Mm -hmm. And, um, because you get a picture of a buck, it might be the only picture that you get of him. And, uh, I had a perfect example today. I went and checked a couple of cameras and, uh, on the 11th, I had a really nice buck came by and he seen my camera and he literally spooked. I mean, you could see him on the, react once he he seen that camera and he blew out of there you could see him running away and that was the only picture or series of pictures i got once that buck seen that camera it was over and he hasn't been back um that's why i preach to people don't put your cameras out too early because if i would have done that say early june he wouldn't have been grown out enough so i could have told anything about him and i'd have got my one chance and he was gone i'd never had any idea how big he Interesting. The way it happened, uh, he had enough antlers that uh, I know he's going to be worth uh, trying to keep an eye on. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to put some new cameras up in different locations in that area, but uh, he, it'll definitely be worth it. Gotcha. All right. Well, I'm excited to hear what the uh, best and worst of the week is from you. Um, <laughs> see if we can get on a maybe a little rant here. I'm yeah, sure, maybe sure, a little bit. I'm sure I might be able to fire you up about something. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll say something about your uh, vaccination post and your comparison to insulin. That seemed to get a few people riled up, but we won't go there tonight. <laughs> well, um, you know me; I've got an opinion about everything. And, <laughs> ah, the thing of it is, though, folks, I can, you and I can disagree. I'm not talking about Terry either. I'm talking about any of you listening. We can disagree on a topic today. And tomorrow we can agree on the next one, and there's no hard feelings on my end. I just, uh, I, I just assume here how you really feel is just to have you nodding your head like a bobblehead to agree with me. So uh, if you disagree with me on this topic, you know maybe the next time we'll agree. But uh, anyway, the what I picked out is, is the best thing that I've seen for the week, and I'm sure a lot of listeners seen it on social media. Was there was that. Uh, 
George Floyd memorial that was painted on the side of a building that got hit by lightning and destroyed. You see that, Terry? I can't believe this is what you picked. Actually, I can. <laughs> well, you know, when, when society is so far down the toilet that we make a hero out of a drug addict with a rap sheet as long as your arm, um, you can only expect that God's going to only go so far, so long without reacting. And I thought it was only fitting that that, that memorial got blown apart with a bolt of lightning. <laughs> <laughs> and I know some people are just going to blow or put, brush this off as coincidence. I think it was more than coincidence. I think God Almighty was speaking, and and uh, He's not happy about the the whole George Floyd incident and and making an idol out of someone like that or anyone really. But, uh, that was just totally over the top and, and, uh, God spoke loud and clear with that lightning bolt. <laughs> All right. So what's, what's the worst? <laughs> I thought, I thought maybe you was going to throw your two cents in there too. <laughs> yeah, I got, I got nothing. I think you're absolutely right though. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the best thing I've seen on social media this week. Um, so the worst, what's the worst? Well, there's a Facebook page called Whitetail Snipers. And some of the listeners are probably members of that page, as am I. And someone, I don't know who, posted a photo of a buck. Um, and this buck had three dots on his side marked A, B, and C. And uh, the question was, where would you aim, point A, point B, or point C? The buck was 25 yards away, and you're 20 feet up in a stand. <laughs> well, the the buck was quartering two and looking right at the at the hunter because it was, I mean he was looking right at the person. So it was a quartering. Picture. It was a quartering two shot, and they were telling you which spot to asking you which spot to aim. Yep. At. And I responded that any ethical bow hunter would not take any of those shots. Oh, I bet and, some people uh, love that. You know, I had a lot of people that agreed with me. Yeah. I thought that was great. But, you know, what I thought was really disgusting was some of the comments. And, and you know, bow hunting has changed so much from, from when I started, you know, 40-some years ago. And a lot of people are trying to make up for lack of hunting skills with equipment. Um, mechanical broadheads is a perfect example. Um, they can't get a you know, a regular, um, fixed blade broadhead to fly good. So what do they do? They go to mechanical, which are nothing but cruel pieces of junk that, that should be in the garbage. And, and the other thing they do is they, they take poor shots. And, uh, this picture depicted a terrible shot angle, just absolutely terrible with the deer looking right at you, quartered at you sharp. And, and people were going on about how that's a dead deer you know, stupid, just one ignorant comment after another. And I think it was the most disgusting post that I've seen on the Internet this week. It gets back into being disciplined enough to take an ethical shot. I mean, it's it's sad that, that someone would ever say throw an arrow at it and we'll find it later. Um, um, just that that is that is sickening. It's there. There was a lot of bad comments um, on that post, and it, it quickly got put on my notes to be the the bad example for this week. Well, and, and I think I can't speak for you, but I've been there, and some of those lessons you have to learn the hard way. I mean, you might get away with them one time, two times, but sooner or later, if if that is how you're going to hunt and take shots and not set up your stands and shooting lanes to where you, you, you're not doing that, sooner or later you're going to lose a buck of a lifetime or, you know, some a, a target buck. And um, not only that, but, you know, wound or um, not be able to recover an animal. Um, I, I think I'm not perfect. I've done it. I've regretted it. Um, if, if anybody watched the Whitetail Cribs episode that, um, that they filmed when uh, Chad and Cameron came to my house and, and videoed my trophy room. 
I talked about it. I mean, the first buck that I shot at with a bow, it was too dark. I couldn't see the deer anymore, let an arrow fly. I might as well have my eyes closed and ended up shooting it right in a butthole. It was facing directly away from me. In that case, it turned out as a story, but it's it's been a moment that I've regretted ever since, you know, because that could have gone completely the other way. So um, I think I think for the most part, every hunter can say that they've taken a bad shot. Um, but to, you got to learn from it. You got to grow. Yeah, for sure. You know, when I was younger, I took some shots that I would never take today. And, uh, but the thing of it is, I became disciplined and I can't remember the last buck I lost. I mean, I know it's been over 20 years, probably 25 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can't even remember it. That's how long it's been. Right. So the thing of it is, we just got to, to grow and mature as, as hunters and, and become more ethical. And, uh, we can, we can't rely on equipment to make up for lack of hunting skills. We need to sh- spend as much time sharpening our hunting skills as we do, you know, jacking around with our equipment. Right. And when we do that, then we can get those deer in close and, and get a good, clean, ethical shot at them. Yep. I agree. Well, um, we're going to move on to the biofarm segment in just a second, but um, you and I haven't talked about this. But when we did the live recording on Facebook uh, for the Lester's Feet Drawing, was that two weeks ago? It was two weeks ago. It wasn't last week. Two Uh weeks ago. We had over 10,000 people between then and now who've watched that episode on Facebook. And... um, you know, obviously, we, we got our large number of people who listen on uh, the podcast platforms. So we had a little bit of a question for you, and, and you guys can send me a message on social media. We have the opportunity. I'm not going to be next week for next week's episode. If you guys want us to wait till Monday, I will be with Don on Monday night. So if we delay one night, Um, we could probably do this on Facebook or YouTube Live. So if you would like us to do that, drop me a note. If not, we'll do the audio-only version on Sunday night before I head up on Monday. So um, I think we have a chance to be in person on it and maybe do video for next week's episode. So if you want to see that, let us know. We want to do it the way you all like it. But with 10,000 people who watched that uh, last episode, um, we might need to start trying to figure out a way to do this if people would rather watch. So give us some feedback on that. And right now we'll move on to the biofarm.com property of the week. Biofarm.com is your source for farm, recreational properties, rural homes, and more. Now here is Don Higgins with this week's featured property. Okay, this week's featured property is 60 acres in Jackson County, Illinois. And it's located on a place called Campbell Pond. Uh, Campbell Pond is one of the best uh, duck and goose hunting um, areas in southern Illinois. This property actually touches Campbell Pond on, uh, I believe it's the west and the north sides. Uh, So there's some fantastic waterfowl hunting there. Um, But uh, there's also uh, almost 60 acres of timber. and Most of that is mature timber. A small part of it has been uh, timbered, but the majority of it has marketable timber on it. Um, The majority of all these properties around Campbell's Pond are privately owned, and it's pretty rare for one to come up available. But but here's an opportunity if you're looking for a property in that area. uh, You'd have an opportunity to hunt not only your waterfowl, but uh, deer, turkey, small game, and such. Um, It'd also be a good place to, to build a hunting lodge or whatever. Uh, this is located near Elkville, Illinois, and if you're interested, you can talk with Agent Mark Kennedy, and Mark's phone number is 618-924-1747. Just tell Mark that uh, you're interested in the 60 acres in Jackson County on Campbell Pond. All right. Well, we want to thank the folks at Biofarm for their support of the podcast. We hope everybody is watching their Facebook page. And if you're interested in this property in Jackson County, Illinois, please go visit biofarm.com. And Mark Kennedy's number, you want to repeat that one more time, Don? Yeah, Mark's number is 618-924-1747. All right. Well, before we move on to the uh, listener-submitted questions, 
I don't have, I'm not going to ever do a best and worst of the week, but I do have a best that I want to brag about real quick. Is that okay? Yeah. Our buddy Eric Perry and Rich Hickson, but I think Eric did most of the heavy lifting, uh, had an event yesterday down in southeast Ohio and uh, right to raise money for his local volunteer fire department called the Great Outdoor Extravaganza and uh, just put his heart and soul into this thing and uh, was able to cut a donation check both to his local fire department and to Lester's feet. And uh, I sent him a message yesterday because I knew how much he was stressed out about it. He worked so hard putting this big event together. Um, Our buddy Chad Sylvester drove like four hours to go do a seminar on trail cameras. Um, Tate Hale spoke. um, You know, he's the... Uh, former college athlete that had to have his leg amputated. Rich Hickson did a food plot seminar. They did, uh, I think, some, I'm not sure if it was a hunter safety class for youth or what it was, but they had a program the entire day yesterday. And um, Lester's Feet um, board members, Austin and Ann Razor, went up to help support it. Um, They gave away a bunch of prizes and raised a lot of money. That's going to help do a lot of good. And I told Eric, I said, you know, even as, as much as you stressed out about this, it's a perfect example about how God can use us no matter what we're doing. Um, whatever our passion is, whatever we're affiliated with, God can use you to do something good and be a blessing to somebody else. So congratulations to Eric. And I know Rick um, Rich Hickson was a big part of that. Um, just fantastic. Good job, guys. Um, just blessed to be called, be able to call you guys friends and have other people answer the calling to try to do something good. Yeah, we appreciate everybody that stepped forward for that event and uh, donated their time and resources. So uh, we all pitch in and and uh, do a little, we can accomplish a lot. All right. So what do you got for questions this week? I got some good ones. All right. Very, one of them at the end is going to be real good. But, uh, okay. We'll start off with one from Mark Paris from Ardmore, Tennessee. And Mark says, Dear Don and Terry, I love your podcast. My question involves summer trail camera placement versus in-season trail camera placement. I hunt in northeast Ohio, and I do not bait, but several neighbors around me do feed deer. How would you set up your trail cameras in July different differently than in October? I use cell cameras to decrease human intrusion. Thank you. Well, Mark, first of all, if I was in an area um, such as Northeast Ohio that, that where you hunt, where it was legal to do so, in the summer I would at least have cameras on mineral licks. Um, I think that's a great way to get an inventory of the bucks that are on a property. Is through these mineral licks, and you don't necessarily have to use bait, corn, or whatever to, to feed the deer, but these mineral licks not only uh, are good for the deer, but it's, it's a great way to get your, your trail camera photos. Um, and when you move into the fall, you know, towards the end of the season, I move my cameras, or the end of the summer, rather, I move my cameras from summer feeding areas to fall rutting areas. And a lot of those cameras are going to be put on mock scrapes or rope scrapes that uh, I've talked about so often. Um, it's just, uh, you know, you got to look at what the deer are really focused on that time of the year. In summer, they're feeding heavily as the, the bucks are growing those antlers and and uh, the does are raising fawns and they're all trying to put on fat for the winter. They're really going to be feeding heavy and that's where you want to concentrate your cameras. And then as we move into the fall, the, the rut starts taking precedence, and uh, that's what the, the bucks are going to be doing especially. So, uh, you know, any funnel areas or scrapes or things like that are perfect places for fall locations for trail cameras. Good deal. Anything to add there, Terry? Or- well, I don't have anything to add because this is probably one of the biggest areas that we're quite a bit different on. Uh, with me being in Kentucky, I can feed all year round, and I throw the protein to them <laughs> every day of the year. So um, I don't, I don't have the situation like Mark's talking about, unless it's in Illinois. And mm-hmm. I really don't move cameras up there. The um, 
the places that I put cameras in, I put enough of them that they're there all year. So I have them basically on the food source and on the uh, hanging scrapes. I'm not moving them. So I go in and put, mm-hmm. them in, put them in both places. I run enough cameras. I don't have to move them. So I'm not kind of in yep. the same boat on that. Okay. We'll move on to the next one from Drew Peterson from Albion, Michigan. Um, Drew says, hi, Terry and Don. I have a question regarding Sunday night show on spring food plots. This question was submitted a while back, and uh, I just dug it out because uh, I liked it. But okay. This is something I've always wondered as I use glyphosate, pre-emergence, et cetera. You mentioned one called the Intimidator, which is three chemicals in one that is a pre-emergent, I believe. But the general question is, do these chemicals we use affect the meat, the venison, the turkey that we're eating later? How do we know these chemicals are not getting into our deer? What does science say? Are we shooting ourselves in the foot, so to speak? We'd love to hear what you guys think. What's Don's chemical guy knows and any research you've done or the MSU guys have done on this topic. The food plot topic is a premier topic in any deer management program. Are there other ways that you personally use to control weeds that are effective? Thanks much, Drew. Long-time listener. Okay, Drew, we appreciate your question, and uh, I picked it out for a reason, and and I think I can uh, look at this from a little different angle and maybe an angle that you and, and some of the other listeners have never thought of before. But, you know, in the course of, of say, it's life or a year or whatever, a deer eats a lot of different things. And the amount of time that that deer is, or the amount of food that he's getting from a food plot even in areas that are heavily managed, really is minimal, if you think about it. He'll, he'll spend uh, as much time eating natural browse and, in, and, more importantly, in ag fields. And there is no way that, that we are ever going to stop uh, the agricultural industry from, from using various chemicals, herbicides, insecticides, whatever. Um, you know, just recently, I was watching, I was driving down the road, and there was a, a crop duster. Um, spray in a, a cornfield and as that crop duster came across the road in front of me right below him two bucks ran out so you know that that crop duster was dropping spray right on the backs of those deer that were out in this giant ag cornfield as food plotters i i don't think i think it's so minimal any impact that that we would have if we stopped doing this i, I know there's been some videos put out on on uh, social media lately about treated seeds and things. But, uh, you know, the food plots compared to agricultural crops are so minimal. I mean, we're not even a tenth of a percent uh, as far as acreage. And uh, the effect that we're having with our food plots is so minimal that even if we did stop using chemicals altogether, and I don't, to answer your question, I do not know of a good substitute unless you want to get out there and pull weeds. Uh, by hand, um, but we're going to have so minimal impact, even if we stop using chemicals, that I, I just think it's a it's a moot point. Yeah, I don't have any science or skill set to stand behind it, but you're right. I mean, even even with how much I supplemental feed and how many deer, I mean, I can pull up my cell camera as we're talking right now and see how many deer are even at the feeder right now just after dark. It is just a drop in the bucket compared to what they're eating for for browse right now, um, and what they're eating on every other ag field around me. So, drop in the bucket. Right. A good question. Yeah, so good question, uh, Drew. I mean, it's and it's a hot topic right now. Um, I know uh, we've gotten a lot of questions here recently because of of uh, some information posted out about you know how our soybeans are treated and stuff like that. So. Good question, Drew. We appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, and I picked that question. It's a question that's been submitted a while back, but uh, it just kind of fit right in with a topic that's pretty hot on social media at the moment. Well, cer- and uh, kind of fit right in. So. Circling back to I'll move on to the last well, question. Hang, this one here might take hang on, a little hang bit on, longer. Hang on, hang on one second though before you do that. Uh, the first part of his question, he 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 mentioned the intimidator residual. Have you been happy with that? Is the weed still under control in your food plots? Yeah, I mean, it, it okay. did a fantastic job, uh, especially on the water hemp. I don't ha- don't see a single water hemp plant in those 
Good deal. Lots that I sprayed with that Intimidator. Good deal. All right, last question. Uh, last question comes from Andrew Justin Westcott from Rock Hill, South Carolina. South Carolina. Uh, Andrew says, good afternoon, gentlemen. First, thank you again for taking the time to read my question. You have mentioned on your website that you only provide land consults in the Midwest region and that every consultant has a region where their services have more value than anywhere else. For the listeners and followers of your podcast who are not in the Midwest, myself, for example, in South Carolina, how do you recommend finding and selecting a whitetail a wildlife consultant in your area? I have always been a recreational hunter who lacks enough experience to get a sense if the possible consultant is not providing me with accurate and quality information other than comparing it to the materials and education you provide us with your podcast and educational channel on YouTube. Now that I have purchased my first track of land, I would love to have someone help guide me into developing my property to be the best it can be for my goals. When selecting a consultant, are there particular questions we should be asking? Are there red flags that we should be immediately looking for when you speak with them? Unfortunately, I have not been able to locate anyone in my area who has hired a consultant to review their experience and outcome. Thank you again for your time. This is a, Andrew, I appreciate the question. This is something that's near and dear to my heart. I want to state right from the beginning that, folks, I've already got more consulting work than I can possibly do. And uh, I've got a, a bigger list right now than I typically would have in November. Um, for this coming winter, I, I don't need the work. So I'm speaking to you from the heart. I'm, I'm, I'm not speaking to you to try to, to gain business. The first thing that, that I think anyone should do that's thinking about hiring a whitetail consultant is you need to determine what your goals are. What do you want to accomplish? What do you want this consultant to help you accomplish? And if you just want to see more deer, um, have better habitat on your property, um, there, there's a number of, of consultants that can probably help you. If you're wanting to kill older, mature bucks, you need to find somebody that's doing it in your region of the country. Um, or, or in, a, it, it doesn't have to be the same state, but you know, in the same type of terrain. Uh, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and I know I'm going to make a few people mad, but I could tell you that it seems like just in the past week, for example, I think I've seen two new whitetail consultant operations advertised on social media, ones that I'd never heard of before. And when I see those, I always check them out and, and look at their credentials and where they're located and things like that. And I also had a call this week or a conversation with a uh, consulting client of mine in Ohio who mentioned that his cousin hired another consultant. And they were kind of comparing notes, and, and he was at his his cousin's farm, and they was taking a little tour, and his cousin showed him one of the stands that the consultant told him to hire. And he asked him, he says, well, what wind direction do you use to hunt this stand? And the cousin said, well, he never said anything about wind direction. We just hung a stand in that tree. And he said, well, what about access routes? How do you get in and out of this stand? And he says, well, this guy's philosophy is that when you're going in in the, in the morning in the dark, you walk in the woods because the deer are out in the field. And in the evening when you're leaving, you uh, do the same. But in the afternoon when you're coming in, you walk across the food source because the deer are in the woods. <laughs> and, and that's this guy's whole philosophy. Well, here's my point. This guy is a well-established consultant. He's been doing it for years, probably, I don't know, 15, 20 years at least. He's got dozens, if not hundreds of clients, a lot of Amish clients hire this guy. And uh, he hasn't, he doesn't have a clue what he's doing. And uh, I've been on multiple farms where this guy has been. And uh, his advice is literally worthless. And people are paying thousands of dollars for advice. And then they buy into it. And the thing of it is, just because you pay somebody doesn't mean you're getting good advice. You need to find define your goal and then find somebody that's been successful at that. If your goal is to kill mature bucks, you need to find somebody that's done that. Um, one thing about, I want to point out that uh, you read my website and some of that information has been on there a few years. 
this past year, I consulted from Kansas all the way to New Jersey and every state in between. Um, and I know New Jersey is not uh, the Midwest. The year before, I was out in Connecticut, Massachusetts, and as far west as Kansas again. A, a few years ago, my daughter took a job in Connecticut, and I, I got I moved her out there. And as I was out there on the East Coast, I recognized that that was is not a whole lot different than where I'm from in Illinois. The, the terrain, the cover, uh, the plant species. I, I know there's some differences there. Uh, but the whole concept of how I try to set up a property, I recognize that it would work there just as well as it works in the Midwest. And over the last two winters, I've branched out a little farther into to the East Coast into states that I once thought I would never go to simply because I had seen that type of terrain before. I always start with a aerial photo. If you call a consultant and he's just ready to put your name on the list and take your money, keep on looking. You should be interviewing him and he should be interviewing you. Anytime that I have a client contact me, I ask for an aerial photo of their property. And I've got a series of about 10 questions about them and their hunting experience and, and their goals and um, their property, the neighboring properties, the area. I want to get a good feel for their situation. And if I don't think I can help them, I, I tell them so, and I have a very candid conversation with them before I ever take a dime of their money. To, to get real specific in your area, I do not know of a consultant in the southeast that, that I could recommend. Um, in, in fact, there's not too many consultants I would recommend anywhere, but there are some, there are, uh, some really good ones uh, in other parts of the country. I just don't happen to know any in, in the south or southeast where you're at, but I think you need to reach out uh, through social media or whatever and talk to people in your region, um, you know, Georgia, uh, North Carolina, those states that, that border South Carolina there. And, and uh, surely there's somebody down there that, that would be a, a good fit for you. And if you still can't find someone, reach out to me in a private message or email, and I will see what I can do. I've got a couple of guys in mind that might be able to help you out. But uh, I just don't know uh, if they do consulting or not. So anyway, that's kind of, of my spiel on consultants. I, I just I see more and more of these guys going into the business that, uh, in my opinion, have no business being in the business. They just uh, they don't have the credentials behind them. And I don't want to rain on anyone's parade. You know, this is America. I, I applaud people for being entrepreneurs and trying to start their own business. But. You know, you need to know what you're doing before you hang your shingle up and, and start taking people's money. Thanks for the question, Andrew. We certainly appreciate it. I hope I didn't step on anybody's toes too hard, but uh, just uh, think some brutal honesty is due. I, I see a lot of people that I feel are getting ripped off, and uh, I just uh, I don't set well with me. So hopefully the advice that I gave here will allow everyone to do their due diligence and do their homework before they hire some of these people. All right. Fantastic. Thanks, Andrew. Well, all right, Don, um, I'm going to be traveling up your way. I think, I think if people want to see it on Facebook or YouTube live, we can probably arrange that as long as we can do it Monday night. Don't you think? Yeah, that shouldn't be a problem at all. So let me know what, let me know what you all want us to do. If you want it, uh, on Sunday night to stay on your, regular scheduled programming i know a lot of guys listen to it monday morning going to work we can do that if you'd rather wait and us do facebook live on it um and maybe get some little bit of interaction on um on monday maybe we can do that so uh give us some feedback on that so outside of that don i ain't got nothing else tonight okay well you got a big week planned um i think i gotta run up to indianapolis uh, Wednesday night for a meeting, but outside of that, I'm just gonna keep watching cell cameras and uh, get ready for a card pool. I'm gonna I'm gonna rotate cards on all the cameras. Uh, it'll take me it'll take me a few days, but starting up in Illinois and working my way back, I'll do a card rotation uh, starting next week. So hopefully, I've been kind of disappointed so far. I don't have a shooter yet, but still looking. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be putting a few cameras out early in the week and then uh, 
my youngest daughter is getting married on Friday, so we'll have a wedding uh, rehearsal on Thursday and a wedding on Friday. And then uh, I'm pretty much free the rest of summer. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't you go ahead and take us out, and good luck at the wedding. I hope you make a good speech. <laughs> well, I've been practicing, too. <laughs> All right. We want to thank our sponsors, Biofarm.com, 360 Hunting Blinds, Victory Chevrolet, Real World Wildlife Products, Vortex Optics, WildlifeFarming.com, Quiet Cat, Matthews, Lone Wolf, and Vengeance Camo. Hope you all have a great week. See you next week.